My name is Michael Brock. I'm the senior pastor here at Third Presbyterian Church. Third Pres has been a part of the downtown Birmingham community since 1884, and we still today hold to the historic, classic Christian faith. We're glad you've been watching, but we would love to have you join us one Sunday in person. Please see our website for our Sunday morning service times, and I hope to meet you soon. Our scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 25, page number 941 in your pew Bibles. And while you're turning there, the children are free to be dismissed for a children's Bible lesson. I'm preaching through the book of Romans, and this is sermon number 22. We learned the theme of Romans in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. After that theme, it's, it's given to, it doesn't say when you're reading Romans, here's the theme. You have to kind of do a little bit of work to figure that out. But uh, after that theme, then from, from then through the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and then into chapter 3, verse 20, it talks about man's need for that salvation. We see example after example, understanding Paul gives us of man's unrighteousness and need for that salvation. But then beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, there's a change in direction. And through the rest of chapter 3, now that we've been in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see God's provision. We see God's righteousness, how He provides for man's unrighteousness. So that's chapters. That's where we've been here lately, chapter 4. So when it changes direction and you see God's righteousness, God's provision, in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, God's righteousness is revealed. And then beginning in chapter 20, uh, verse 27 of chapter 3 through verse 31, God's righteousness, the gospel, is defended against some critics. And then here in chapter 4, it's illustrated and, and illustrated in the life of Abraham primarily. A little, little bit he talks about David, but mostly we see it in the life of Abraham. So that's where we are. We're talking about Abraham. And, of course, I, I know that not everyone here would be familiar with uh, their Bibles, understand Abraham, David. You've heard some of these names perhaps. But a little bit reminder, Abraham lived about 2000 B.C. And he, was, uh, he lived east of uh, Israel um, in what would be most likely modern-day uh, Iraq. Um, we, we learned about him in Genesis chapter 12. That's where it begins the story of Abraham, the history of Abraham. So up through Genesis chapters 1 through 11, you've got Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood. And then we encounter Abraham, who was a Gentile. But God says to him, leave your people and I'm going to make a new people out of you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be uh, I'm yours, you're mine. We're going to be together. I'm going to give you this special land, um, and I'm going to make a great nation of you. That's the the calling that Abraham gets in Genesis chapter 12. We learn, you know, there's some, some history there about Gen uh, chapters 13 and 14, chapter 15. There's still no child. Oh, I should have mentioned this from Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Sarah, his wife, was barren. Genesis chapter 15. She's still barren. Still no child. The Lord's promise, again, I'm going to make a great people out of you. 
Still, though, no child. God reiterated, though, His promise. Abraham believed the Lord. And God considered that, that faith. Uh, he counted it as righteousness. Genesis chapter 17 comes along. Still no child. God reiterates the promise. And this time He gives him a sign. He gives him the sign of circumcision, a visible reminder of His promise. But again, at that point, still no child. Finally, we get to Genesis chapter 21, and Isaac is born. So that's where we pick up, really, in Romans chapter 4. The illustration of Abraham, a man who is right with God, not by his performance, but by his faith. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Beginning in verse 13 of Romans chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of, a, of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Lord, please open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from this, your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm thankful that I live in a meritocracy rather than an aristocracy. Uh, I like the fact that performance is rewarded. And, of course, you see that sometimes. Uh, you, maybe it'll be a TV show or a newspaper article where a high school senior you know, made straight A's through school and so he gets a, a full-ride scholarship. Or maybe he wasn't the best student or she wasn't the best student, but they had perfect attendance. So they get rewarded by uh, some sort of scholarship or something that's really good and helpful for them as they move forward. About 20 years ago, in September of 2004, Oprah Winfrey, I don't even know if she's still on TV, but anyway, Oprah, who was the queen of daytime television at the, for many years, she was celebrating her 19th season. And she did so by giving away cars. And... 
there were 276 members of the audience that day who were selected to be in the audience. And they were selected because family and friends wrote to the show uh, talking about their need for a vehicle. And she began her show by calling 11 people out of the audience to come up to onto the stage and tell their story. And I didn't go back and watch it, but I don't know how exactly she did it. But all 11 of them received a brand new Pontiac G6, which I guess was the car probably in 2004. Well, then she distributed a gift box to everyone in the audience. And she told them that in one of those uh, in one of those gift boxes, there were keys to another free vehicle. And so, you know, they, they, hand, they get all the gift boxes out and everybody opens them up. And guess what? Every gift box had keys to a vehicle. And so as there's pandemonium, you know, people are so excited. They're jumping around. They're, they're screaming. They're, they're hugging, you know, each other. They're so excited. And Oprah at that point is walking around saying, you get a car. You get a car. You get a car. Everybody gets a car. And indeed... Everybody got a car. They went outside. You know, they had took the cameras outside to the parking lot where there were 276 new cars with uh, bright red ribbons, bows on them. I didn't make straight A's. <laughs> um, I didn't have perfect attendance. And so if it were up to my performance, I would never be invited on some sort of TV show. There would never be a newspaper article about me receiving a scholarship or a new car that would be based on my performance. My, my only hope of ever getting something like that would be pure gift, grace, not performance. I'm going to venture here that most of you didn't make straight A's either. I'm sure there are some straight-A students in here, but probably most of you were not straight-A's, and probably some of you, like me, um, skipped school a few times, and uh, you didn't get the perfect attendance award. And so if any gift, any blessing comes your way, it's going to be determined, determined not by your performance, but it's going to be given to you by grace. And that's what Paul is reminding the Christians in Rome of here. That the blessing of God comes not through performance, but through faith. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham and his descendants, they received the promise that they would receive the whole world. And they didn't receive that. Abraham didn't receive that because he was such a great guy. Because he was so obedient, because he never uh, sinned, because he was uh, you know, full of good works, or because he kept all the religious rituals. Remember, this is Genesis chapter 12. There weren't too many religious rituals at that point. There was The law of God had not been given through Moses at, at that point. He received that promise because he was right with God through faith, not through his performance. And if you're a Christian today then you stand in Abraham's line. You are a descendant of Abraham because a Christian is first and foremost someone who recognizes my performance will never make me right with God. My only hope is the work of Christ and I cling to that by faith. And so Abraham may have paved the way for us, but we walk in that path as, with him as our father, the father of our faith. 
verse 16 puts it this way. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Now, you may not be Jewish. And in that sense, you're, you're thinking, well, I'm not his offspring. If you have come to know God by faith through Christ and the work of Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. It's be guaranteed to all his, his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. Again, that's the promise. I'll make you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead. That's us spiritually before we come to know Christ. We're spiritually dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the path that leads to God, that restored relationship and eternity of reigning with Christ. And all of this blessedness, it comes not from our performance, not by law, not through our works, but it, we relate to God on the basis of faith. Abraham did and we do as well. So what does it look like then? And I want to kind of work through the remainder of this, just contrasting faith and performance with two points. Number one, a performance-based life leads to nothingness. It leads to nothingness. When, when we have a performance-based life, or a performance is the paradigm upon which we approach life and live, Verse 14 says, For if it, if, the, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. If people could get God's promise by following the law, then who needs faith? Faith is worthless. It's, it's, it's unimportant. And not only that, but God's promise to Abraham is worthless as well. Or maybe another way to say it is that if God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary. And the promise is pointless. Why is that? Because of what we see there in verse 15. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law of God only ends up bringing the wrath of God on those who dis disobey it, which we all do. Every Christian, or every person does, Christians are those who recognize it and confess it and repent of it and turn from it. You know, whenever you join the church, the very first question that's asked of you, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, and without any hope except for His sovereign mercy, do you? The law always brings punishment on those who try to live by it because you can't keep it. It'd be, I should be like Oprah running around. You know, Oprah's up there saying, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. I should run around and be saying, you can't keep it. You can't keep the law. You can't keep the law. You, well, none of us can keep the law. The only, and, and what that verse says there in verse 15, the only way to avoid breaking the law is to not have a law. This performance-based approach to life, it receives, it deserves the wrath of God, and it leads to nothingness. But then number two, second point, a faith-based life leads to blessedness. Performance-based, law-based, works-based life leads to nothingness. A faith-based life leads to 
blessedness. It leads to the reaping of the fulfillment of the promises of God. Which is what we see in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring. Christians get what God has promised by faith. Not by law. Not by performance. Not by works. And this happens so that the promise can be a free gift. If it wasn't faith, then it wouldn't be a gift. It would be earned. You you would have deserved it. And if the promise is a free gift, then all of Abraham's people will get that promise. So faith-based life leads to blessedness. And let me mention several points of application. A life of blessedness lives by faith, not by my plan. A life of blessedness lives by faith, not by my plan. Think about Abraham. One of the details that I didn't mention earlier about him, uh, he's the father of all of us who live by faith, which I did say that. But Abraham was not perfect. Uh, Sarah, as I mentioned, was unable to have children. And so what did they do? They came up with a plan. They devised a plan for, for Abraham to impregnate uh, Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, which she did uh, get pregnant, had Ishmael. But that resulted not in blessing, but in animosity, in strife, in difficulty. A life of blessedness lives by faith in the promises of God, not by the plan of man. Now, I'm not saying that you should avoid having a plan. Um, you know, we, we should be diligent and thoughtful. I'm not telling you that you should avoid planning at all. And in fact, the book of Proverbs tells us to, to think and plan and get counsel, get advice before making decisions. So the question is not, do you have a plan? But the question is, are you trusting in that plan? Or have you surrendered your plan to the Lord? Sometimes the way we say it is, are you holding that plan with an open hand? I'm not saying you should avoid preparing yourself. I'm not saying you should avoid putting yourself in good situations. I'm I'm not saying you should eschew all ambition. I mean, even in the Bible, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read about if anyone aspires to leadership in the church, then he, he desires a noble task. You know, that's, that's a good thing. But a life of blessedness lives by faith, not by your plan, not by your maneuverings, not by your shenanigans, not by, you, you, know, you know, working uh, the smoke and mirrors sort of uh, backroom deals kind of thing. A life of blessedness lives by faith. The way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. When you're doing some things like that, you're not living by faith. You're living by your plan, your strategy, your maneuverings of a situation to make sure you get what you think you deserve or should get or what you want. One article puts it this way. Be grateful for what is rather than strategizing for what ought to be. Be grateful for what is rather than strategizing for what ought to be. A life of blessedness 
lives by faith, not by my plan. And then second, a life of blessedness lives by faith, not by my sight, not by what I see. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Oh, wait a second. God, how could, how could that be? Because he doesn't even have one descendant. How can he be made the father of many nations? Abraham believed the Lord. He believes, as it says there, in the God who gives life to the dead and speaks of things that don't yet exist as if they do. Abraham believed the Lord. A life of faith believes the Lord despite your circumstances and your mood telling you differently. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Living by faith rather than by sight. Number three, a life of blessedness lives by faith, not by my strength. We see in verse 19, He did not weaken in faith when He considered His own body, which was as good as dead since He was about a hundred years old, or when He considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You know, sometimes we Christians, we go about getting what we want by just sheer force of personality. Or, or, maybe, or, or maybe we'll say, well, I'll, I'll use my, uh, my position or my authority. Or I'll use my argument. You may get what you want, but it won't necessarily be what God wants. You may get what you want, but you lose your soul in the process. You know, some of you do have a commanding presence or a high position. And you can basically tell people to jump and they'll ask how high. Do you use that sparingly? Do you practice meekness? Do you defer to others even though you have the authority or the power to overrule? A life of blessedness lives by faith, not by my strength. Eugene Peterson put it this way. Killing the opposition is the beast is the beast's way of solving its problems. It is not ours. Ours is endurance and faith. Fourth and finally, a life of blessedness lives by faith, not by my timeline. Not by my timeline. Verse twenty mentions here, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham had to wait. And a life of faith means that you have to wait. A life of faith means you have to wait until God provides. You have to trust the Lord until He provides. And frankly, this is just my opinion. There's not a Bible verse that says this. But patience, in my opinion, is the number one trait of faith. Patience, waiting on the Lord. And the way patience works, when you, when you think you've waited long enough, then you're just beginning to understand what patience and faith are. And you need to hang in there longer. <laughs> Wait on the Lord. 
So many times in the Bible we see that, don't we? Wait on the Lord. A life of blessedness lives by faith, not by my timeline or my strength or my plan. All of these subpoints that I've just covered, um, I, I, the way I said it was a life of blessedness lives by faith, not by my, again, my plan, my sight, my uh, strength, my timeline. A life of blessedness lives by faith, not by me. Our final hymn today is going to be, um, My Faith Looks Up to Thee. That's, that's just it, yes. My faith looks up to Thee, not to me. And I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that most of the problems in our lives are there because we are not living by faith. And I know that, you know, you might think, oh, the sermon just on faith, it's such an, you know, abstract idea, it's such an ephemeral, ethereal, ethereal concept. Um, but that's, that's, where, that's where faith gets very practical. Now, granted, when a tornado comes through your house, it doesn't mean because you are not living by faith. That's, that's a sermon against charismatic craziness for another time. But... Um, but so many of the problems that we kind of bring into our, we bring, uh, that we create ourselves are because we're not living by faith. You live by your performance and you reap nothingness. Entrust yourself and your ways to the Lord and, and, and not only to, to the Lord but to His ways and you reap blessedness. I'll take faith. I, I'll, I'll take faith over performance. Because my, my performance always stinks. <laughs> I'll take faith. And I don't do faith perfectly either. My, my sinful nature regularly thinks that it knows best. It's the better way. But my performance never results in blessing. I'll take, I'll take the gift from the wealthy benefactor. <laughs> you know, Oprah has billions. So for her to give away 276 brand new G6s is, is, um, uh, is, is a drop in the bucket to her wealth. Our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He created and sustains the universe. I'll take a gift from my wealthy benefactor, the Lord God Himself. And what does it say going back to chapter 1? The righteous shall live by faith. So yeah, a new car if you perform well and get straight A's or a full ride scholarship if you're, if you're never absent or whatever. Not me. I will take grace. I will take faith. I'll latch on to the person and work of Christ and hold on to Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that that would be the case for each of us here today. That we would hold on to Christ by faith. Because His performance was and is perfect. And it can be counted, it can be credited to our account. And so I pray that we would love that and live in that and live by faith in the God who provides and is faithful to His promises in His time and in His ways through Jesus.